This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. The Word of God found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy all on my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is God's word. From a distance... A mountain can look simple. It's a mountain with a single peak. Remember how we used to draw them as kids? Very simple, yeah. But I don't know if you've experienced this. As you get closer to a mountain, you may realize this single peak, or what looked like a single peak from a distance, is actually a little more complicated. Uh, My first experience with this that I can recall was in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in northern New Mexico where I lived for a couple of years. Um, From a distance, now Santa Fe sits 7,000 feet above sea level, but the mountains, uh, you look to the north and you've got the Sangre de Cristos. Um, from, From Santa Fe, it can look very simple. You start to drive up there, you start to hike up there, you realize this is more complicated than it looked a few miles away. Um, a single mountain, so to speak, can actually be comprised of multiple peaks or multiple ridges. Um, another example of this, you can stand on Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena, California, which I know you Badger fans, because of your Rose Bowl, you can stand on Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena, California, you can look to the north, and there's Mount Wilson, And from Orange Grove Boulevard, you can think, well, it's just a mountain. But it's actually a series of ridges that together form Mount Wilson. 
Prophetic literature in the Bible is much like that. What looks like a singular peak, one mountain, is actually a series of ridges. We can look at a passage of scripture in the prophetic books and think it's talking about just one thing when in actuality it's talking about a series of related things. The prophets give us patterns of expectation, patterns of expectation. So prophetic writings often contain ridges that together form a mountain. Isaiah 11 is a great example of this. The main theme, the big idea, is the arrival of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, the anointed one. But which one? Which arrival? His first arrival at Christmas? His second coming to establish his millennial reign? Or is this describing the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the answer is, it speaks to all of them. The ridges that together form a mountain. Isaiah 11 was partially fulfilled at Christmas, but it will be climactically fulfilled when Jesus makes his second coming. So we're gonna look today at what this text teaches us about the arrival of the Messiah, the breaking in of the Messiah, and the Messiah's ability to bring vitality out of decay to bring vitality out of decay. Now the imagery of the scene as we start chapter 11 is important to picture. Okay, I want you to picture what what is the most vast forest you have ever beheld in your lifetime. Just think about that for a minute. Trees as far as the eye can see. Okay, now I want you to picture that forest hewn down so that all you can see are stumps as far as the eye can see. On the one hand, I think that would be a pretty awesome picture to behold, but on the other hand, it would be quite eerie. In this historical context, this is God's people. This is the picture that we have as we start chapter 11. It's God's people. Because of their rebellion, God used Assyria to be an ax to strike them down. And now there are only stumps as far as the eye can see. The picture is one of hopelessness, decay, lifelessness. That's the picture. Now, at the end of the passage, let me show you what we read. Verse 10, look at it. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Magnificent change has taken place. Wouldn't you say? Magnificent, we go from a field of stumps as far as the eye can see to a glorious resting place. We go from lifelessness, hopelessness, decaying forest to a resting place that draws people to it. The question is how? That's the question, how? How does this happen? We're gonna look at it from this text. We're gonna need to see our participation in this is to value the ordinary, believe the extraordinary, and share in a supreme delight. 
Okay, here we go. First, we need to value the ordinary. Verse one. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Singular shoot, tiny sapling, two inches, maybe three inches, begins to emerge from this vast forest of hewn down trees. Stumps as far as the eye can see. A two inch, maybe three inch sapling begins to emerge. Can you picture that? In this vast forest, stumps as far as the eye can see. There's this tiny little sapling that starts to emerge. There's nothing spectacular about that. At least in my mind's eye, I can't picture that being spectacular, but doesn't that describe Christmas? Doesn't that describe how Jesus came into many of our lives? It wasn't with a megaphone, with a spotlight. It was subtle. Take the Christmas story as an example. Joseph and Mary, they're not from the ruling class. They're among the poor. How do we know this? The Old Testament law stipulated that when a son turned 40 days old, that boy was to be taken to the temple and the sacrifice of a lamb offered. Now the law stipulated that if the family could not afford a lamb, they could bring two doves. What did Mary bring? Two doves. Jesus is not born into a family that could celebrate his arrival with great fanfare. He was born into an ordinary family. In fact, the ordinariness of Jesus' arrival is compounded when Joseph and Mary discover that they'll have to spend the night in a stable, sleeping with the animals. So there's nothing hair-raising about the Messiah's arrival into this world of stumps. Now, conventional wisdom would say that that's not what you would expect from someone who possesses the kind of internal value and power that Jesus possesses. Wouldn't someone like Jesus, wouldn't his arrival, his breaking into the world be something a little more, I don't know, fanfare-ish? I once heard a pastor just do a thought experiment on that. Say, you know, if, if I was drawing it up, how would I orchestrate the arrival of Jesus into the world? And he was at a football game and the Blue Angels were performing at halftime right above the stadium, 50,000 seats. You know, and they do their, their aeronautical stunts and crazy stuff, and the, the fans are going nuts. When they get done, the pilots are actually helicoptered in to the 50-yard line, middle of the field. And they come out, and they're wearing their shiny blue and yellow and silver suits, and the fans are going crazy. And the pastor said, if I was Jesus, that's how I would have arrived. That's not how he did it. He emerged as a tiny sapling from a stump. But at the end of the story, this ordinary tiny sapling from an ordinary stump creates a glorious resting place the nations flock to. So what's our takeaway? If you look at your life and it feels like a forest of stumps, lifeless, decaying, hopeless, Or maybe you're part of a community of people. It could be your family. It could be something else you're a part of. And and it feels like a forest of stumps, lifeless, hopeless, decaying. Don't be fooled into thinking that what you need is something that's hair-raising and spectacular. This text is teaching us the only thing that will move you from a forest of stumps to a glorious resting place is Jesus. And that doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. The answer is the same for both. 
The answer is the same in both cases. The only thing that moves you from a forest of stumps to a glorious resting place is Jesus. If you leave him out of it, or you settle for an artificial substitute, you may have something flashy, you may have something people cheer, you may have something more popular, but you'll still be a stump. You can't move from decay to vitality by bypassing Jesus. You cannot move from decay to vitality by bypassing Jesus. Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida contains four theme parks. Some of you know this. In the center of each theme park, inside the Holy of Holies, that's another sermon. (laughs) At the center of each park is a signature structure. Magic Kingdom has the famous castle, right? Cinderella's castle. Epcot has the giant golf ball. Uh, I, I learned it's not, they don't call it that. It's a, uh, it's, let me get it right. It's a geodesic sphere. I call it a golf ball. Animal Kingdom, here's a picture of it. Animal Kingdom has a ginormous tree. It's a real picture, by the way. Ginormous tree, 145 feet high, 170 feet in diameter at the base. 170 feet in diameter at the base. It's an incredible thing to behold. Eye-catching. At night, through magic, watch this. Magic. Of course. It's technology, but magic. This tree gets lit up. And animation makes this tree pop. They can put animals moving around on it. They can, you can see a little lion hop up and crawl up on it. They can, they can cover it in snow. Right? It's mesmerizing. Here's the deal. This tree is fake. <laughs> it's a sculpture. It's dead. And do you know what they named this tree? The tree of life. There isn't a shred of life in or on this tree. It's dead. But it looks amazing. It's captivating. It's alluring. And it serves as a microcosm of the challenge that we face. If you yourself feel like a forest of stumps, lifeless, hopeless, decaying, or you're trying to offer hope to someone who is lifeless, if you sidestep Jesus in favor of something that looks better, appears more practical, or generates more popularity, you're just giving them this tree. Underneath, they'll remain a stump. In our own strength, we will never value the ordinary. God has to give us eyes to see the ordinary. He has to give us ears to hear the ordinary. He has to give us a heart that values the ordinary. If you're feeling like a forest of stumps, the best thing you can do, let me give you a list. Best things you can do. Ready? Use your ordinary voice to do what may feel like an ordinary thing. Call out to Jesus. Use your ordinary eyes to read ordinary words on the pages of a perceived to be ordinary Bible. Use your ordinary phone to call an ordinary friend and share with them what it feels like to be a stump. And then wait. Wait. Because unlike Disney's Tree of Life, Jesus the sapling is alive. 
Moving from a state of decay to a state of hope, we're gonna need to value the ordinary. Second, we're gonna need to believe the extraordinary. We see this in verses two to five. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Both righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt. Faithfulness, the sash around his waist. So these verses are creating a tension with verse one. Verse one is ordinary. A sapling emerging from a stump, ordinary. Verses two through five are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Picture G, now let me try to give you a picture of what two through five is, is jumping at. Picture Jesus as an adult. What does he look like? Drop a portrait. What does Jesus look like as an adult? Does his visual appearance stand out? No. Nothing about him stands out visually. There's nothing in the text of scripture that says so. He's an ordinary first century Jewish man, like everybody else. But there's also something extraordinary about him, right? Numerous, re- numerous places we could go to here, but let me give you really one fun one. John chapter one. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael says, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus and Nathanael have never met and when Jesus refers to having, having seen Nathanael under a fig tree, this is not as though Jesus was standing 50 yards off and he saw it. No, they were miles apart when it happened. And, and Nathanael's astounded, astounded. So when you think about this, it's really incredible and it illustrates a contrast in Isaiah 11. On the one hand, Jesus is ordinary. On the other hand, he's extraordinary. Now, in a number of different ways, verses two through five in Isaiah 11 are describing the supernatural wisdom of Jesus. He's described as a wise king. He knows all of Solomon's Proverbs and he could add a thousand more. He knows what needs to be done, the best way to get it done, and has the power to get it done. Now, notice specifically something about his wisdom. The text says, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Did you see that? That's a metaphor for the depth of his wisdom. Jesus sees, but not with his eyes. We get that in Nathaniel's story. He sees, but not with his eyes. He hears, but not with his ears. How do you and I see and hear? When you think back on all the foolish and stupid choices you've made in your life, almost always it was because you went on appearances. They looked good. He looked good. She looked good. Everything appeared fine. And you didn't have the wisdom to penetrate past the appearance down into the reality and see. But this Messiah has perfect wisdom, extraordinary wisdom. Now Christians historically have not been good at demonstrating this kind of wisdom. Um, We've been too prone to go on appearances. Let me mention one example. 100 years ago, 
uh, there was a huge division that took place inside the Christian church and institutions of North America and Europe. And what people started saying, it's 100 years ago, what people started saying was uh, things like, the world has shown us that everything has a scientific explanation. All the smart people know that everything has a scientific explanation. Everything has a natural cause. And miracles can't happen. The supernatural doesn't happen. And because the world has told us this, we're going to have to change Christianity if it's going to survive at all. And they said, see, one of the problems we have is this book. It's filled with miracles. It's got miracles all over the place. And they said, if Christianity is going to survive, we've got to find a way of extracting from the Bible the ethical principles that everyone can accept. And we should love one another, should work for social justice, all that stuff. These things are fine, but we can't, we can't believe in a pre-existing deity. We can't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. We can't believe in a bodily resurrection. We can't believe in an infallible inspired Bible. We can't believe that people need to miraculously be, be converted through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't believe those things. And therefore, there was a great division in the church. It was enormous. Every major Christian denomination, every major Christian institution, college, university, and the people who took those churches and denominations and institutions said, we've got to conform to what the world is telling us, otherwise they're going to laugh at us and they're not going to respect us. No smart people are going to want to go to your church unless you get rid of the supernatural. You've got to get rid of the miracles. And so many churches, many organizations, many institutions went in that direction. They, they pulled out, they kept the ethical, but they got rid of the supernatural. Here's what we know 100 years later. The churches and institutions that went on appearance and embraced the wisdom of the world and rejected the supernatural are all in steep decline. All of them. And yet Christianity, with its belief in the supernatural, is growing like crazy. And it's doing so around the world in places nobody thought it would. And it's a supernatural religion. And you want to know why, at least I think, non-supernatural Christianity is in decline. This is just my take on it. Why I think non-supernatural Christianity is in decline. Because when, when the supernatural was removed, when the supernatural was removed, it turned Christianity or what was left of it into a self-improvement religion. You've got to suck it up. You, you, uh, you've got to pull it together. And that only works for people in prosperous comfortable countries. When the supernatural was removed from Christianity, it turned Christianity or what was left of it into an elitist thing. But what about the wretched of the earth? What about, the, what about most people in the world who can't do that? They can't pull themselves up by the bootstraps. What about them? See, the message of Christmas is that God has miraculously punched a hole in the barrier between heaven and earth. And he's broken into space and time and now there's hope and mercy. And that's something that truly changes lives. Do you believe in the extraordinary wisdom of this sapling? Do you believe in the extraordinary wisdom of Jesus who possesses the unique ability to penetrate past the appearance and get down into the reality and see? See, all we see is a weak, wimpy shepherd boy with a cute toy as a weapon. But God sees a powerful king who can take out a nine-foot-tall elite soldier. All we can see is an army outnumbered, 135,000 to 300. God sees victory without them lifting a finger. 
We may see a fearful, compromised Jewish girl, but God sees in Esther the ability to outwit the second in command of the Persian Empire. See, every foolish and stupid decision we've ever made was because we went on appearance. But Jesus has the wisdom to penetrate past the appearance and get down into the reality and see what's really there. Now, remember the context. Verses two through five aren't actually calling us to do anything. They're descriptive verses. They're describing the wisdom of the king, Jesus Christ. But in the context of the story, the story is moving. It's moving from stumps to a glorious resting place. The story's moving from a state of lifelessness and hopelessness and decay to a state of joy and flourishing. And so the text is calling us to something. It's calling us to acknowledge, to see, to submit to the supernatural and wise rule of the king. Doing so is necessary for stumps to flourish again. Doing so is necessary for stumps to flourish again. Maybe the most practical way to do this is to read, understand, and believe everything Jesus says, even the parts that look silly to you. Remember, Jesus doesn't rule on appearances. We do. That's why we're tempted to disbelieve this or that about the Bible. This verse or passage doesn't sound right. It doesn't appear right. But remember, every foolish and stupid decision we've ever made is because we went on appearances. Only the wise king has the wisdom to penetrate past the appearance and get down into the reality. That's what this book's here for, by the way. It's trying to plunge you past the appearance down into the reality. So if you find yourself more often than not, and there's a place to ask questions, there's a place for healthy doubting, but if you find yourself more often than not calling into question the things you read in this book, you're not submitting to the supernatural and wise rule of the king and you'll remain a stump. Last, to move from stumps to a glorious resting place. We need to share in a supreme delight. The verses were read for us. I'm not gonna reread those right now. You have these animals talked about. The wolf and the lamb, these, these pears, They're beautiful verses. There's a couple of things to notice about them. The first thing to notice is the reconciliation of hostilities and the unification of that which was formerly divided. Reconciliation of hostilities, unification of that which was formerly divided. The wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, a calf, a lion, and a little child cow and a bear, a nursing child, picture that, and a cobra, a weaned child, and a viper. These combinations don't normally coexist together in peace and harmony, but that's what they're describing. There's both diversity and there's unity. Second thing to notice is the change in nature of the animals themselves. The cow and the bear now eat the same food. The lion and the ox now both eat straw. There's been an internal change of nature that has created the reconciliation and unity. There's been an internal change of character that now allows these groups to exist 
in harmony and unity. Now, this is, of course, poetic imagery. We're talking about people, not just animals. We're talking about human community. So how does this happen? How can any human community experience this reconciliation and unity, this internal change of nature? How does that happen? On the one hand, we're told the king comes to rule. Jesus comes to rule. But verse 9 also gives us an explanation. They will, after listing these pairs, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The word for is the word because. It's because. The reason there is reconciliation of hostilities, the reason there is unity, the reason there's internal change of nature is the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Now the word for knowledge is a bit metallic. The, the sense of the statement's more alive than that. Something like the earth will be full of knowing the Lord. It conveys the idea of an ongoing pursuit of knowing Jesus, a preoccupation with Jesus. It's more than a preoccupation with information about Jesus. It's a preoccupation with delighting in Jesus, rejoicing in Jesus, enjoying Jesus, being Jesus-obsessed. The route to reconciliation and unity runs straight through Jesus. You can't get there any other way. Let me try to pull this together. What does this reconciliation, what does this unity have to do with a stump-filled existence? Well, isn't much of our lifelessness, our hopelessness, our decay due to relationships? Conflict, hostility. You have a relationship with another person that's in a state of disrepair. Conflict, hostility with a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. Or maybe it's one group of people in relationship to another group of people. Isn't much of our stump-filled existence due to that? The hope of this passage is that there can be reconciliation. There can be unity, but the passage also creates a rub. (laughs) You're not gonna find reconciliation, you're not gonna find unity with one or more people unless you share a supreme delight. And in this passage, it's Jesus Christ. You see it in the text? Verse nine. Let me provocatively illustrate this. The only place, the only place I've ever witnessed firsthand, conservatives and liberals high-fiving one another was at a Packer game. (laughs) This is one person's experience, it's limited. Maybe it happens more often than that. But in my limited lifetime experience, it's the only place I've ever seen it. And when I saw it, I was intrigued by it. I was more than intrigued by it. I was captivated by it. In fact, I remember more about the high fives than I do the game. Of course, it was the Packers, so how interesting can that be anyway? Okay, okay, okay. I may have crossed the line. In my state of ruminative perplexity, I reflected on what I had witnessed over the course of the next couple weeks and concluded the only way, 
those liberals and conservatives could have possibly high-fived one another with authentic, joyous enthusiasm was because in that moment, however brief, they shared a supreme delight. In that moment, they were full of knowing the Packers. Delighting in the Packers, rejoicing in the Packers. Their unity, or at least their appearance of it, was created by sharing a common supreme delight. But it was an artificial unity. Why? Because the Packers, being a shared supreme delight, contrary to what you may think, does not possess the power to create an internal change of character, at least for the good. The text is telling us lions will eat straw. Bears and cows will have the same diet. How does that happen? What does the text say? This happens because Jesus is the shared supreme delight. Only when Jesus is the shared supreme delight is there an internal change of character. And only an internal change of character can generate true reconciliation and unity. So listen, if you care about the hostility among nations, then you should care supremely about the nations being full of knowing and delighting in the Lord above all things. If you care about the hostility among ethnic groups, then you should care supremely about ethnic groups being full of knowing and delighting in the Lord above all things. If you care about the hostility among Christians, maybe in your family, then you should care supremely about Christians being full of knowing and delighting in the Lord above all things. Now let me go back to the imagery of the mountain. Remember, we're in Pasadena, California. We're on Orange Grove Boulevard. We're looking at Mount Wilson. It's one mountain. It's got several ridges. This passage is about multiple things. But it's climactically about the second coming of Jesus. And just like the Jewish people, back at that time of the year, the first Christmas, were waiting with bated breath for the arrival of their Messiah. We are in a similar spot. We're on the edge of our seats, waiting with bated breath for the arrival of our Messiah. When Jesus will strike the earth with his justice, and the wolf and the lamb will live together in unity, and your children will play with snakes with no harm ever coming to them. It's beautiful. No wonder Isaiah sees a resting place that's glorious. The passage is filled with hope because it centers around Jesus. His arrival, his wisdom, his rule, his power to change, and his people possessing a supreme delight in all of it, in all of it. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the linchpin of it all. The only thing that moves us from a forest of stumps to a glorious resting place is you. 
So often we want to reduce change to a technique rather than the pursuit of you. So help us, Jesus. Give us eyes to see you, ears to hear you, hearts that are submitted to your wisdom and rule. Alert us to the cheap substitutes that in the end still leave us lifeless. And I pray that our lives and our church would be characterized by being full of knowing you, full of delighting in you, full of rejoicing in you. Jesus, above all things, I pray you would be our shared supreme delight that results in the wolf living in harmony with the lamb. We plead for this. In your name we pray, amen.